right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Luke this morning. What a blessing to see each of you here, and it has been a glorious morning, and it is exciting as we, I was thinking about yesterday, I was here volunteering some time and on the grounds, and uh, man, there were things going on everywhere around this church, and there must have been uh, 50 cars, 60, 70 cars. I was thinking, I am so glad that 20 years ago, some people had faith to come out here and say, okay, preacher, let's do it, and uh I think uh, it's a whole lot better for this whole county than to have a bunch of weeds out here in this lot. And so thank God for it. And uh, Amen. So good to see each of you here. And a blessed time already this morning. So today we're going to talk about one of the most familiar uh, parables in the New Testament. And uh, especially blessed one, I think, uh, surprisingly so, for those of you who have been a believer maybe for many years. And uh, I hope you'll listen closely this morning. Now, how do you see yourself today? What kind of a person are you? Now, you say, are you trying to put some psychological stuff on us faster? No. Actually, the answer to the question, how do you see yourself, is a very important question. And it is my um, contention this morning that how we see ourselves relates very definitely to how we see God. One of the jokes I like to tell now and then, a woman hired a photographer to uh, do a portrait of her. And she got all ready and dolled up and went there and had it done and later looked at the pictures but was sorely disappointed, just didn't look good at all. And she uh, flipped through the photos and finally uh, grouched at the photographer, this and that and this and that. Finally, she exclaimed, sir, these photos do not do me any justice. And he said, ma'am, you don't need justice. What you need is mercy. <laughs> and this morning, I was looking into the blessed Word of God, the mirror of the Word of God. I looked into the mirror of the Word of God this morning, and you know what I see? I see a man that needs mercy. I need mercy. You need mercy this morning. The eminent theologian said, the beginning of true knowledge, listen, is to know oneself to be a sinner. Well-known Baptist pastor John Piper put it this way, until we see sin and its consequences more keenly, we will not prize our pardon very highly. Now today's parable I think is greatly needed in the modern church, especially the evangelical church, because it seems like somewhere along the line we have gone from the wonderful sense of no shame because we've been forgiven and somehow that concept has devolved, evolved into there's never any shame. That is, we must never feel bad about sin. Now, besides being bad theology, surprisingly, it has a very practical consequence. It robs us of the sense of who God is and what He's done. Seeing myself as a saint is great. It's biblical. But seeing myself as a saved sinner, a 
That is so vital to making us love God. And that's the story today. Jesus took this entire moment to say, look, we've got to get to a point in our life where we have, we have a love for Jesus. Are you in love with Jesus Christ this morning? And that's really the whole text of what we're going to talk about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the victory that we do have in you. And Lord, we've uh, sung songs that have lifted us. We've been had a wonderful testimony this morning. Lord, it's been a great week. Just day after day, Lord, so many victories, so many answers to prayer. Thank you. Now, Lord, I pray that my precious brothers and sisters will get the sense of that I have this morning about this, and that, Lord, we'll go home today with great victory in our spirits. Amen. Let's go to the setting of this uh, parable. Luke chapter 7, verse number 36, and one of the Pharisees desired him that he would heat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Now, this story shouldn't be confused with another story. It's very similar in the New Testament. That one is in three of the Gospels, uh, most notably in Matthew 26, although there is some similarity. It's different people, however. This one is a Pharisee. That one was a leper. This, uh, that place was Judea. This one is someplace in Galilee during the earthly ministry of our Lord. This is a village. Jesus has been teaching and preaching regularly. This particular story probably takes place after preaching at a local synagogue. Very well could have been an invitation to eat after church. Not uncommon for people to eat together after church. In fact, uh, just about everywhere in the world we go, they always eat after church, right on the grounds, wherever they are. We're about the only place I think it doesn't do that. But they had a, a, a meetings, a and in this case, uh, was invited to the home of a Pharisee. A Pharisee, of course, is just a religious uh, man who they believed the Bible. They were literalists. But sadly, they added so much to the Bible that uh, the purity of the gospel and purity of Scripture soon got lost. And so uh, the very fact that he invited Jesus to dinner was a nice thing. And on the surface, it seemed like a good thing. Tragically, sadly, however, as we'll see... Uh, he had ulterior motives. Actually, he hated Jesus, and he was trying to put him into a trap. You'd say, well, why would Jesus uh, go into such a place? Well, because Jesus loved everybody. He loved uh, the down and out, but he loved the up and in, too. And he loved people who uh, had an issue with the gospel, an issue with the Bible. He tried to do whatever he could to, to make an impact on their life. Now, when you go to a dinner like this back then, uh, it was a, a sit-down dinner. It was definitely not fast food, not In-N-Out burger here. Uh, when they would go to a dinner like that, they would uh, sit around the table, but they would do more than sit. Oftentimes, they would recline because they were going to be there a while. And uh, sitting in a, uh, a hard chair wouldn't work out, so they would often recline. So you can imagine them kind of on an elbow or lying there uh, with their feet away from the table. There was also uh, some uh, very uh, practical reasons for that because uh, uh, they wore a very hot area, very dirty. They often wore sandals, and so their feet would be under the table, and uh, they didn't want all these stinky feet just right there. It didn't have the cleanliness that we have in our area. Now, uh, in addition to that, uh, it was a very common thing for people to come and to, uh, to actually attend a dinner like that. Even though it was a private dinner, Especially when a celebrity like Jesus, who really was a celebrity, uh, when he would come around, uh, 
they would allow people to come. Of course, the windows were often open. They didn't have glass. And so uh, people would either stand around the outside or actually be invited on the inside. Now they had to kind of be on the periphery of the room. Uh, and they, so they were allowed. I mean, it was kind of like it was a big deal in these small villages for someone who was notable like Jesus Christ to come around. So the Pharisee, being one of the very prominent members of the community, he allowed people to come in and watch the dinner, listen in, kind of like we do on TV. You know, we watch the rich and the famous, the Kardashians, what they do in their lives, not a whole lot unlike that. And so we would be watching, you know, what was going to happen. And of course, uh, there was a, another reason, and that was after the meal was over, uh, the people, especially the poor ones, might do a little bit of dumpster diving. I mean, there's often scraps left over, and Jesus even told a story about a woman who wanted some of the scraps from the table, and that was not uncommon. And so here is a group of people in the home. The Pharisee was the main person. Jesus Christ was the celebrity, as it were, and uh, there they were. That's the setting. Verse number 37, and behold. Now, when you see that word behold, it's not just, uh, just another word. It means, wow, look at this. I mean, this is amazing. This is out of uh, anything normal. Behold, this is the strangest thing. A woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't mince words here. He called the woman a sinner. Now, to be very accurate, she was a saved sinner, as we'll see in a few moments. She had been a sinner. Now, we're not talking about just any sin here. She was noted for her sinful lifestyle. Most commentaries, almost everybody is, agrees on this, that this woman was most likely a prostitute, a harlot. And so the fact that this woman was such a even in our day, I mean, someone who is so notable in that area, coming to a home like that and being right in the home and standing there, I mean, that would be a pretty big deal, and it was certainly back then. But she had a plan. In her heart of hearts, she just had to show her love to Jesus Christ. What would she do? Well, she brought with her, very specifically, Scripture tells us that she brought with her an alabaster uh, a bottle. Now, many Jewish women, especially those who had a little bit of money, would wear, have a, an alabaster uh, little pendant, maybe a, on a rope around their neck, and they would put it on themselves, the original soap on a rope, you know. But uh, others would have it in a bottle like this. And the Bible says it was an alabaster. Actually, thousands of those archaeological finds have found those. I found a picture of one of those. And uh, these were most often quarried from uh, Egypt. The very bottle itself was quite uh, expensive. And then they would put uh, different kinds of scents in there. Now, I don't know what kind of scent that it was, but whatever the case was, it was this woman's prized possession. Being a prostitute, perhaps it was even more part of what was her lifestyle was all about. And so, I mean, this was something very expensive, very beautiful. It was her way of reaching out. Now, she comes prepared to give. She comes prepared as a saved sinner to express her love. And I thought about how like that is. We all come together. We are sinners that have been saved by the grace of God, and we come prepared to give. Thank God for this church. You show that over and over again, that you are prepared to give. Verse 38, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. 
and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She slips in. That was certainly uh, not a good thing for this woman to be in this setting. Uh, but she just had to be where Jesus was. If Jesus is there, that's where I'm going to be. I say, if Jesus is there, that's where I'm going to be. That's why I like going to church on Sunday. Amen. I say, well, I want to be where Jesus is. Amen. Then get into a good Bible-believing church. And that's what she said. She said, I'm going to be there and I am going to express my love. And I just encourage everybody to express your love. If that's raising your hands, if that's singing to the Lord atop of your lungs, if that's quietly worshiping, if that's uh, shuffling your feet a bit, uh, do so. I mean, she just had to express her love for the Lord. She's standing there. She's seeing Christ, the, the Christ of God. She is seeing the anointed Messiah, the one who saved her from her sins. Apparently, she had been saved earlier uh, in the weeks there since Jesus had been there. and she, uh, she could no longer contain. An emotional dam burst forth and her eyes became fountains and she began to weep. In fact, when it says there that she washed her feet, the actual word wash there is a word for river, the same word for river used in Scripture. I mean, it was an absolute river. Now, being that his head was towards the table and his feet were away from the table, being the fact that she was on the perimeter, she really didn't have access to his head, but she did have access to his feet. There she is. She looks down and sees these dirty feet. Here Christ comes. He was a he was a man's man. He was a real man. He certainly had sandaled feet. She just begins to wash. The, the, the tears, the river of tears are dripping all over his feet. She sees that and then thinks his feet need to be washed. That's just not seemly. And now that they got all my tears on them, she looks for a towel, has no towel to find. And so she reaches down and she takes her hair, apparently had long enough hair to wash the feet of Jesus. Not a bad thought. Long enough hair. She reached down there and then she began to dry off his feet and all that, all that dust. And now was mud and she was wiping his feet. And then of all things, she takes this alabaster perfume this alabaster jar, opens it up, pours this lavish perfume. I began to think about perfume that we have. I, I got a little cologne uh, for my Father's Day. It was pretty pricey cologne, and I was very grateful for it. And uh, I was thinking, man, that's, that stuff's expensive for such a small amount. And I got to looking, what's the most expensive cologne today? And Clive Christian number one, if you want, it's kind of like Chanel number five, only a lot better. And it is $10,000 an ounce. I put a picture of it here, but uh, why is it so expensive? Tahitian vanilla, Lang Lang, whatever that is, Italian cinnamon, jasmine, orris root, and rose oil. I mean, that is pricey. So imagine in your mind this woman with this unbelievable scent this alabaster jar, pouring it over the feet of Jesus, and then of all things, <laughs> of all things, she begins to hug 
The Bible says kiss, actually same word for hug, even the same word for like stroke. There she is. She is at the feet of Jesus, kneeling, just holding on to his feet. I mean, it was an awesome scene and, of course, pretty awkward for many around, including the Pharisee, which couldn't stand such an overt display of her demotion of her emotion about Jesus Christ. Verse 39, and when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for he is a sinner. So he passes an erroneous mental judgment on who God is. I say he passes an erroneous mental judgment about who God is not based on scripture, just based on something that was in his head. And I meet people all the time like that. So do you, don't you? They have all these mental gymnastics they go through and gyrations, you know. I was talking with one fellow stopped by here one day. Um, he was uh, looking at the youth were having a yard sale and we began to talk and he was from another country and uh, Hindu, I think it was, or whatever. It could have been anything, but uh, we talked for a few moments, and I told him about Jesus Christ, and then he went off and began to spin this yarn. I mean, to tell you, I could, I could sound just like him if I wanted to. There was a God who came, and there was a God in the clouds who came and gave to us these, and that we wanted to make sure that our feelings were all around, and then the trees and the rocks, and all of it came together, and we began to have a oneness, and there was a beauty that, that was exactly the way he talked. Only did that for about 10 minutes. I'm like, usually. I guess the way it is with all these religions, you just say whatever comes to your mind, and that just sounds great, and then you put it on paper, and uh, that's what it was. And that's what this guy was doing. He was just spinning in his head. Gee, he couldn't be a Messiah. He couldn't be God, because if he was God, he would know that was a sinner. And he wouldn't let that sinner touch him, because God doesn't let sinners get close to him. All crazy theology, but he was thinking it in his brain, verse 40, and Jesus said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee, and he answered the most dangerous thing you've ever said, Master, say on. <laughs> you sure you want to say that to God? <laughs> Charlie Brown, the uh, great comic character, see him in a little frame there, he's looking pensively into the sky. And he says, sometimes I lay awake at night and I ask, where have I gone wrong? And then a voice says to me, this is going to take more than one night. <laughs> God, speak to me. Are you sure you want God to speak? And surprisingly, Jesus answers the question that wasn't asked. Now we have the story. Verse number 41, the parable. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. Now I'll remind you again that the word pence is an English word. It comes from the old English. They didn't have pence back in the day. They had denarii. And one denarii was a day's uh, labor, a day's worth of work. Verse 42, when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? So two different debtors. One owed him 50, which is about a month and a half of uh, income. 
One owed him 500, which would have been about a year and a half of income. Well, the guy, uh, both of them couldn't pay, and so the creditor forgave them both. Now, the word forgave there uh, is a great word because it is the Greek word charis, or charis, actually, a right uh, pronunciation, uh, C-H-A-R-I-S. We have a daughter named Charity. It means grace, charity grace. And uh, here, um, it, it means to be, give something, to give. And so uh, this fellow gave. I mean, he didn't just forgive them of their debt. He took a loss. I mean, this guy, he had given him 50 denarii. He had given him 500 denarii. And he didn't just, it wasn't just an on-paper write-off. We're talking about he lost 550 denarii. We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. That's what this guy did. And he forgave it. And that's what God does. Verse 43, Simon answered and said, well, I suppose, I suppose to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, thou hast rightly judged. And so he asks Simon to answer the question, who do you think loved him most? Notice Simon's uh, answer. I suppose <laughs> he was dragging his feet. He didn't want to answer. I'm sure he was uh, cautious because he knew Jesus was about ready to give a punchline. It's kind of when my grandkids come in and come in. One of them came in and said, Papa, knock, knock. <laughs> okay. Who's there? Cow says. Cow says who? No, Papa. Cow says moo. Anyway... <laughs> So you get, you know, they come and they're, get, they're getting ready to give you a little joke or something. You're waiting for the punchline. I'm sure he was waiting for the punchline. The setting, the story, and now the sermon. Verse 44, he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. I mean, Simon was just a... Uh, strict dude. I don't know if he was just a cheapskate or he was just cold or whatever the case was, but to not allow people to clean their feet and to sit around the table like that, that just was, it'd be like saying, don't use my bathroom. Don't wash your hands before you eat. You know, you can come to dinner, but don't you dare wash your hands. That's just not going to be. But she has washed my feet, not just washed my feet, but she washed them with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You didn't give me any little uh, uh, thing to wipe my feet. You didn't uh, have a servant do that. Thou gavest me no kiss. He's not meaning he wanted that affection. He was just simply saying, you didn't even shake my hand. You didn't even greet me. I just walked in. This woman, since the time I came in, hath not even ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. You didn't give me any uh, nice-smelling ointment, any way to kind of rub off all the heat in the, of the day. But this woman hath anointed my feet, not just my head, but my feet. By the way, she anointed. You know that the word Christ means anointed. Jesus is the Christ. And in her own way, whether she knew it or not, she was anointing Jesus as Christ. Verse 47, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now, why in the world would this woman give such an outrageous demonstration 
of her affection? Was she just some religious nut, you know? We see them now and then. You see them driving along with their car, and they have 42,000 bumper stickers and this and that, and some of them are just like, man, that's just, that's just wrong, you know? Other people standing around with their signs, and it's, some of that's good, but you know, to a point, was she just a religious nut? But it says, no, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, the grammar in the Greek there is not just are forgiven, meaning they're right now forgiven. It means past tense. They've been. They have been. In fact, you can take the word are there, maybe circle it or highlight it, and and right in there, have been. They have already been forgiven. So somewhere along the line, was it the day before? Was it the day before? Was it during the week when Jesus was walking around preaching in the village? Her sins were forgiven. She got born again. She got saved. Now, when she first got saved, uh, it may have struck her, but maybe not for a while. My dad uh, was a first-generation Christian. My mom was a first-generation Christian. My mom got saved first. She got saved in a small Pentecostal-type church in Portland, Oregon, and the preacher came down and he uh, was one of those old-time preachers, you know, would stand up here, and he'd preach, and he'd say, you need to come down and get saved. But he didn't wait for people to come down. He went back there, put his arm on her shoulder, and he said, you need to come down here and get saved. And uh, she did. She came down she, out of fear or whatever, but she came down. The story is, they tell me, that when she came home, she looked at my dad and said, I just did the strangest thing I've ever done in all my life. She said, I just went to church there, and I asked Jesus into my heart. And at first, it didn't seem like much. But all of a sudden, there was this new appetite. She wanted to read the Bible, and she got Dad into reading the Bible a little bit, and not too much longer. They both ended up at another church, and Dad got saved, ended up becoming a pastor. But you know, uh, that's this woman. She got born again, and as the days went by, the sense that her guilt was forgiven was amazing. She saw everybody else and they were 50 denarii people, but she knew she was a 500 denarii people. She just knew how much God had written off and how much she had been blessed. And then verse 48, and he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. He gives her the assurance of her salvation. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad that God gives us the assurance of our salvation? He gives her the assurance. He speaks to her. Your sins are forgiven. Do you have the assurance of your salvation? Has Jesus whispered in your spirit? You are saved. Your sins are forgiven. By the way, it's past tense. Past tense. They have been saved. Now verse 49, they that sat at meat with him. So there were some that were right in the circle. They were probably well-to-do people, probably movers and shakers in the community. They said within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins? Now they got a different message. The woman got the message, I'm a 500 denarii sinner, and that they've been washed away. But they got a different message. They got the message, who in the world has the audacity to say they are forgiving people's sins. Who can say such a thing? Are you telling us that you're God? This week, Pauline and I and others went out to to the community, and we approached a man uh, uh, 
who was uh, of another faith. And uh, I told him, I said, I know that uh, you think Jesus is a prophet. And he was a, a great prophet. And I said, but he was more than a prophet. He was God in the flesh. He was a savior. He said, well, Jesus never said he was God. I said, oh, yes, he said he was God. He many times in it, verses like this, again, reminds us that only God can forgive sins. And that's what these people are stumbling on. Are you telling me that you're God because somehow you're forgiving sins here? Oh, what a terrible blindness. They couldn't imagine that Jesus was God. And then verse 50, and he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee. He didn't say your love has saved you. He didn't say your anointing me has saved you. He didn't say the fact that you wept, you saved me. He said your faith. And that's what it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You are saved by the grace of God, but it's through our faith that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And then he says something so wonderful. Look at that last part of verse 50. Go in peace. The, the, uh, the word there is shalom. Go into, not go in peace, but go into shalom. Enter into your shalom. Enter into your peace. I have given you the assurance of your salvation. You have been saved by your faith through the, you've been saved by the grace of God through your faith. And now you can go in peace. Now, Jesus brings up a very important point in all of this. And some in the evangelical church will bristle at the thought that there are levels of love inside of any average church. Levels of love. There are people who love him much, and there are those who love him little. And that's what I said at the beginning of the message. How do you see yourself? How we see ourselves is really how much we love Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a first-generation Christian, Pastor Mike's a good example. He got saved in his 20s, and he knows what kind of sins and He's always been very gracious about it, and he's been very transparent, open about it. And yet I'm a second-generation Christian. I don't have the same kind of a background he has. Yet both of us have a passion for Jesus Christ. Both of us have a love for the Lord. Now, it's easy or easier in one sense for a person who's been saved from, they're a 500 denarii sinner. I'm one of those 500 denarii sinners. Boy, I... I owed God a year and a half worth of salary. I have been such a sinner. It's sometimes easier for them, according to this parable, for them to move into a love for Jesus than those who've been saved a little. And so Jesus is trying to bring up the point. Everybody ought to move up to that place where there are 500 denarii sinner. You ought to move up to that point where you realize how much you've been saved from. Now, I am no perfect Christian, but I will tell you, I am in love with Jesus Christ this morning. When I sing, I mean, every, almost every day of my life, I weep. Something gets a hold of my spirit. Something from the scripture, some song, something I see. I mean, and God's grace just floods into my soul. And we have, we just, I just loved every day for God to speak to my heart. I love coming on Sundays and fellowshipping and hugging people. I love all the wonderful worship times. I just go home so blessed. And I think about why... Why is it then that I'm in love with Jesus when a lot of people who have my background, they just seem so nominal, just like they don't have a love for Jesus. I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying, and that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out. He's saying, you ought to, there's something about us. We ought to have a deep love for Jesus Christ. So for me, 
Let me give you two things that I do in my life, two ways I sense that I have found a way to say I love Him so much. First of all, I see my sins as exceedingly sinful. Now, I think it's one thing to look at ourselves, yes, I'm a sinner. And sometimes we're so quick to say that, but we don't really realize just how deep of a sinner we really are. Look what it says in Romans 7, 13, was then that which is good made death to me? God forbid. Hard when the Bible becomes something that's an implement of death. But sin, that it might appear sin. <laughs> it, sin needs to appear as sin. The world loves to make sin look good, but God makes it look bad. Working death in me by that which is good. Now look at this last part of this verse. That sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Tragically, too many evangelical Christians today don't have a sense of exceeding sinfulness. Oh, I've, yeah, I've done a few bad things, or yeah, I'm not perfect. And I meet all people all the time say, I'm not perfect. No, no, that's, that's not the right answer. The right answer is, I am absolutely sinful. I am exceedingly sinful. Now, how do we come to that point? By the commandment. Look at that verse. That sin by the commandment becomes exceedingly sinful. The reason we don't see our sin as exceedingly sinful is because we're not in the commandments. And if we are in the Bible, we're just cherry picking, you know. We get those little verses, those little nice little juicy verses that sound so good, you know, they make me feel good in the morning. We don't like Leviticus or Lamentations or we don't like, you know, those uh, things that really get a hold of us. We don't want to spend too much time in the book of Romans. It's too confusing, too doctrinal. But here, that sin by the commandment becomes exceedingly sinful. And so here's what I'm saying this morning. When I read of Noah's drunkenness, I don't say, man, I can't believe that Noah would do something like that. When I read of Noah's drunkenness, I say, God, that's me. I'm a drunk. I'm a drunk. I am Noah. I am that man. Now, by the grace of God, I've never been drunk. By the grace of God, I've never had that in my life. But I would say, really, it's more logistical than spiritual. I can't say that I've never been drunk because I'm such a great Christian. I can just say probably I've never really had the opportunity like some. Some parents practically put beer in the baby bottles. I've never had that. I've never been around that. But I'm a drunk because like that, sin becomes exceedingly sinful through the Word of God. When I read of Moses' anger, I say, that's me. That's me. I would have done the exact same thing. If I would have been in Moses' place, I would have done the same thing. I would have been that way. I would have been worse. Sin through the command becomes exceedingly sinful. And that's what happens when we look at Scripture. We, be, we understand our depravity. My, I am totally depraved. There is a doctrine in some circles called total depravity. And total depravity is certainly a scriptural truth. Unfortunately, many have misinterpreted meaning total inability. I'm so depraved, I can't ever come to God. And they say that God will cast you into hell because you're so depraved. But that's not scriptural. The depravity of man is very definitely scriptural. Depravity simply means I am as wicked as anybody given the right circumstances. 
I am as wicked as anybody. We'd say, oh, that person, you know what, that's me. (laughs) We see some of the stuff going on in this world, that's me. If it wasn't for God's grace, that's me. If it wasn't for God, that's me. Sin becomes exceedingly sinful. You'd say, well, pastor, if I see myself like that, it's going to be discouraging. It's going to put me down. Well, it would if there was no solution. But thank God there is a solution, and that's the grace of God. And that's what the hymn says, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds my sin and my guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there was the blood of the Lamb spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace that is greater than all our sin. Romans 5, 12 says, where sin abounded. Grace did much more abound. God said you can't out-sin God's grace. In fact, the, the technicalities of that verse are powerful. Sometime when you get a chance, read it, but I'll give you a quick rundown. It says where sin floods, grace super floods. Super. The word abound there is super. It is just we go much, God's grace is much greater than any sin. And so, when I see myself as exceedingly sinful, sometimes I hear people say, man, David was a terrible man. No, I'm a terrible man just like David. Oh, you know, so-and-so was a terrible person. Yeah, that's me. Sometimes we look at others, but God should look at us and we should look at ourselves and say, my sin is exceedingly sinful. Number two, I must see my sin as nailing Jesus to the cross. When I see it was my sins, 1 Peter 2.21, because Christ also suffered for us. Who put Christ on the cross? There's always a debate about that. Was it the Romans? Was it those Jewish religious false teachers? Was it the common Gentile? No, the answer is I put Jesus on the cross. I was the one that placed that crown of thorns on Jesus. In my office, someone gave me a a facsimile of the crown of thorns. And uh, occasionally someone will look up there. Usually it's a child. The, parent, the adults seem to come in and kind of bypass it, but the children will come by and say, what's that? I'd say, well, that's a, that's a crown of thorns. That's what they put on the head of Jesus. And I'm glad that there on my, on my wall in my office, there's a reminder that Jesus did that. But see, that was my hands that placed it on his head. It was my hands that nailed Jesus to the cross. I was the one. I was the one. And when I see that, that Jesus had to die for my sins, that seems to put all things in perspective. In this parable, I see sin as a debt. Four things about this that I want to give you before we are done. Sin is a debt. And by the way, debt is never looked at as a good thing in Scripture. We owe debt. All of us owe a debt to a gracious God. Number two, there are some that are deeper in debt than others. Some are 500 denarii, some are 50. But the fact is we're all sinful people. It is true that some have been given greater light and that they still sin. The third thing is that our debt, whether more or less, is more than we're able to pay. The fact is none of us, whether a lot or a little, have no way of repayment. And the fourth fact is this, that God is ready to forgive whatever the size debt that we have. I'm not sure what's going on in the evangelical world today, but it seems like I see it on book covers. I hear it in songs occasionally. There, once in a while, I hear it on TV. 
And the theme is never see yourself as a sinner. And no shame has turned into never shame. And I thank God for the fact that when He cleanses us, I don't have to feel shame anymore. But the fact is, I think we should always see ourselves to a point as a sinner. There's certainly some truth. I think the right way is I'm a saint, but I'm a saved sinner. Thank God I'm a saint. Thank God my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But the fact is, I am a sinner been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And far from demeaning us, I think the idea that I'm a saved sinner is the surest guarantee of not only virtue, but of a deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ. An ungrateful, loveless Christian undercuts the very testimony of the gospel. We ought to be so in love with Jesus that when songs of Christ come on, when thoughts of what Jesus has done, I'm telling you, it ought to just thrill our soul. There was a, and I close with this, there was a much-loved man of God, a pastor, who had carried a very secret burden of sin that he had committed many years earlier. He had repented and repented, but still, he just really didn't have any peace. In his church, there was a woman who deeply loved God, but she seemed a little different. She said God always spoke to her, and she had dreams where God would tell her things. The pastor, wisely cautious, decided to test her. And he said, uh, sister, the next time Christ comes and speaks to you, and the next time you speak to him, I want you to ask him something for me. I want you to ask him what sin it was that your pastor committed while he was in seminary. The woman agreed, knew her pastor was struggling. And a few days later, the pastor said, well, sis, did you, did you talk to Jesus? Did he come to you in one of your dreams? And she said, well, yes, he did. Well, did you ask him what sin I committed in my seminary days? And she said, yes, I did. I, I asked him. Well, what did he say? And she looked at him and smiled and said, he said, I don't remember. I don't remember. And that's exactly what God has said to this woman. Go in peace or go into your shalom. You're a 500 denarii sinner. But thank God for the grace of God who has given you that peace. Now this morning, would you like to have that love, that just that excitement about God? Now you might be like, I, maybe I've not had the opportunity. I would have probably done it had I had it. I've not had this, done the sins that many have, but certainly no way, shape, or form I can say I'm sinless. I see myself as a 500 denarii sinner. And when we sing songs like, you know, we sing around here that all my sins are gone, I see myself. I don't think of anybody else but me, my sin. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning. What kind of a sinner are you? I'm a, I'm a 500 denarii sinner. Whether, I've, whether you've been involved in those type of things or not, the fact is, See sin as exceedingly sinful. The fact is it took just as much blood for Jesus to save one little sin as a thousand. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was my